It turns out that although I have preached more than 1,300 sermons over the more than 30 years that I have been preaching, this is only the second time I have ever preached on the 4th of July. How is that possible? Mainly because nearly every time that the 4th of July has fallen on a Sunday, I have been at annual conference. Because for years and years and years, the brethren have taken advantage of favorable convention center rates over the week of the 4th of July. (laughs) Apparently, most convention centers have a hard time finding anyone who wants to schedule their conference or convention over this holiday weekend except for us. And why is that? Why do we have annual conference over the 4th of July most years? Is it only because we like a good deal in terms of the cost of convention center rates? Or as some might say, is it only because we brethren are cheap? Well, it's partly that. But it is also the case that we are just less focused on the 4th than many other folks are. The 4th of July is a holiday, of course, but it's not the most important holiday to us. And it's certainly not a holiday that the church is focused on. Now, being happy enough to go to annual conference instead of being home to celebrate the 4th doesn't mean that we don't love this land in which we live. We do. It's not that being American isn't something that's embedded into our identity. It is. But the symbols and celebrations of nationalism, the hyper-focus of some people on the flag, the attempt to merge ideals of God and country, and an uncritical elevation of patriotism in the sense of idolizing the founding fathers or the Constitution or military might or unquestioned American values is not at the core of who we are. Our sense of belonging, our sense of citizenship is certainly important to us, but who and what do we belong to? Where is our citizenship? Well, first of all, we belong to Christ. We belong to the Prince of Peace, to the Savior, to the one who washed feet and told Peter to put down the sword the one who ate with sinners and ministered to Gentiles. We belong to the one who invited us to come and follow him, to work for healing, for justice, for love. So we belong to Christ, and therefore our primary citizenship is within the realm of God. And because we belong to the realm of God, and not just to the nation of our birth or our adoption. Our citizenship is bigger and broader than the limits of local or regional or even national boundaries. That is, while we may reside in and even belong to a particular geographic community, we also belong to a much wider expression of community. 
As those who would find their identity in Christ, we find our place in ever larger circles of belonging and connection. Yes, we find our place in a local community, a region, a country, but we also find our place within the circle of God's large, large family. That is, we also find our place in a global community. Yes, we belong to a family, a faith family, a community, a culture, but we also belong to the larger human family. John Hartsall, when he was telling the children's story last Sunday, and he showed the photo named Earthrise, a picture of the earth as seen from the moon, he noted the brilliant white and blue and green of the planet, the natural colors of clouds and oceans and vegetation. But he also noted that looking down on the earth from out there in space, one cannot see any boundaries or borders between countries. None of those human-made lines, no divisions, nothing to divide or differentiate or protect one country, one people from another. We all live on earth. We all live in the world. Everything we do on one side of the earth affects others on the other side of the earth. Hasn't the pandemic taught us that? Hasn't climate change taught us that? Hasn't war and food insecurity and migration of people fleeing difficulty or danger in one place and looking for hope and opportunity in another taught us that? It's interesting, isn't it, that even though we know that our fate is tied to, is connected to people around the globe, that so many of us and our neighbors are at the same time so bound and determined to be people primarily known or identified as people of national identity, that we're so obsessed with and protective of our own culture, that we are so tribal, with tribe often being defined as those who have the majority power in the setting of a nation state, that we so quickly and seemingly instinctively identify our group in terms of race, that we are so obsessed with that which makes us feel separate or different. National identity, as I said, is one of the primary identifiers and metrics of allegiance in the world today. National boundaries and so-called national interests are drivers for that. Loyalty tests seem often to be arranged around the nation state. I pledge allegiance. But for brethren and Anabaptist-minded groups... The question of accountability and loyalty and citizen identity really comes down to this. Are we following Jesus? Are we obedient to Jesus? Are we living into our citizenship in the realm of God? Is it more important for us to identify as loyal Americans or faithful Christians particularly if those identities may conflict. On Youth Sunday, back in the beginning of May, I talked about some Mennonite identity material that emphasized the following three phrases. Jesus is the center of our faith. Community is the center of our lives. 
reconciliation is the center of our work. In that material, in a more detailed part, which I didn't share with you that day, there was for each of those phrases a compare and contrast section. Comparing and contrasting what many Christians emphasize versus what Anabaptist Christians emphasize. And in the section on Jesus is the center of our faith, there was this compare and contrast distinction. Many Christians believe that since government leaders are ordained of God, they must be obeyed even if their demands are contrary to the teachings of Jesus or the dictates of conscience. Anabaptist Christians recognize that government is ordained of God and must be obeyed insofar as obedience to Christ will allow. However, the demands of government shall not overrule the lordship of Jesus. We need to obey government. It continues to the extent that Christian discipleship permits. But when there is a conflict between the ways of Jesus and the ways of Caesar... We need to say with the early disciples, we must obey God rather than any human authority. That's from Acts chapter 5, verse 29. During the Revolutionary War, brethren and Mennonites living in Pennsylvania found themselves in just such a difficult spot. In 1775, they together the Brethren and the Mennonites, submitted a short document to the Pennsylvania Assembly explaining their position. The Brethren Encyclopedia recounts it this way. The statement began with an expression of indebtedness to God and then of indebtedness to the Assembly for providing liberty of conscience to those individuals who proposed to, quote, love their enemies and not resist evil. You recognize that phrase, right, from the Sermon on the Mount. They announced their willingness to aid those in need and, quote, distressed circumstances, to pay taxes, and to be, quote, subject to the higher powers, but they explained that they were, quote, not at liberty in conscience to take up arms to conquer our enemies, but rather to pray to God. There was no way that they could pledge allegiance if pledging allegiance meant going against their convictions and their conscience. And they paid a price. Now, it would be simple enough to frame all of what I've just been talking about in terms of issues of separation of church and state, questions of what we can or can't do or will or won't do when discipleship and citizenship come into conflict, And the early brethren seemed often interested in their separation as much as more or more than they were interested in their engagement. But given the world in which we live today, with its high level of interdependence and interrelationship, any questions about our relations to the government or our national identity takes us more and more away from just questions of separation and more and more in the direction of considering our connections. So it's not just about avoiding something. It's about standing for something and standing with other people, with the human family. We can't do violence to our enemies, even if the state demands it. 
But this is not just to keep blood off our hands. It is also because we believe something. We believe that other humans are God-created and God-touched and God-loved. We believe that Jesus taught us to love our enemies in order that we might transform relationships from foe to friend. We believe that there really is a human family, that nation-states might create a structure for functioning of the world, and that cultures may grow up in different places in different ways, but nevertheless, we hold a conviction that humans are humans everywhere, in every nation, in every corner of the world, and therefore we are connected to the whole human family. We are connected to the whole human family. And to that point, we have done all kinds of things in our particular faith tradition and in our particular congregation to affirm that being an American is really an accident of birth. While being a human, a globally aware and connected human being, is our true birthright. And being a Christian is the center point of our sense of identity and action. I saw a man the other day with a t-shirt that read, five things you don't mess with. Family, faith, friends, flag, firearms. I should have talked to the man wearing the t-shirt, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. The same company that makes that t-shirt makes another one that says, America, live it, love it, or get the hell out. We have a different idea. We have a different idea. We have this idea that in Christ, God came to reach out to the whole human family to make flags less important and firearms unnecessary. Because in Christ, we see brothers and sisters everywhere. We see potential brothers and sisters everywhere. And freedom, then, which is supposedly what we are celebrating on the 4th of July, isn't the freedom to oppress or to dismiss dismiss or destroy, but it is freedom from fear and hate, freedom to risk reconciliation, freedom to step out in love. 
So the theme for today in this Values and Identity series is Global Connection, and the sermon title is It's a Small World After All, and indeed it is a small world because it is a connected world, a world not meant to be a world of false and fearful divisions and defenses, but a world meant to be seen in its beauty and unity, a world of white clouds and blue oceans and green vegetation, but also a world with eight billion people who are going to have to get along. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about us, his followers, being salt and light. As salt, we flavor the world with hope with justice. We flavor the world with love for others, including the stranger, including the foreigner, including the enemy. We flavor the world with respect and reaching out with service and compassion. And we are also the light, says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We are the light of the world, not the light of the rocket's red glare, but the light that is most clearly seen in our good works, which then reflect God's glory. And when we let that light shine, it shines across the world into distant places, into shadowed places. And again, the word hope comes into view. The light of the world, the light of Christ in the world, has to be the light of hope. And so think about the way that light travels how fast and how far it travels. It knows no boundaries. It knows no exclusions. It chases the darkness away everywhere. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It doesn't say you are the protector of freedoms. You are the upholder of constitutions. You are the best in the world. No, it says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Think about all the places you have been in this world, all the connections you have made. Some of you have been teachers in Nigeria. Some of you have provided medical care in Central America. Some of you have been witnesses for peace in the Middle East, and on and on. Were those people you encountered in those places less worthy of whatever you offered of yourself, your gifts, than the people who live just down the street from you? Were those cultures less worthy of admiration and respect than the culture which shaped you in your upbringing? Were the children you met in those places, were they not somehow your very own children? The verses from Revelation read for us this morning share a vision of healing for the world. The river of life flows from the throne of God, and on both sides of the river is the tree of life, or the trees of life like the tree of life in Genesis, the tree of life in Proverbs, the tree of life that shows up numerous places in the book of Revelation. This tree has fruit, 12 kinds, one for every month, and the leaves on the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Not for the triumph of the nations, not for the victory of the nations, for the healing of the nations. For the healing of the nations... 
This is the gift of the tree of life, but it might also be the gift of our lives. And that desire for the healing of the nations has been at the core of who we are, our identity, and our values. I know that because I wouldn't be here if that wasn't true. If the brethren, if churches like ours didn't believe in the healing of the nations, didn't prioritize the healing of the nations, I wouldn't be here. Without my German father coming to America through brethren-sponsored youth exchange in the post-war years after World War II, he wouldn't have been placed with a brethren pastor's family, he wouldn't have met my mother, years later married her, and I wouldn't be here. So no surprise that I considered in a very personal way a very important value, the healing of the nations. But you consider it important too. You have in the past and you will continue to in the future. More solidarity trips will be made, more refugees will be accepted, more exchange students will be hosted, and we will gratefully be connected to persons from many places and many cultures, persons who will remind us that we are part of the whole human family, and what a blessing that will be. Amen? Please join me in some moments of silent prayer and reflection. We will do this next hymn as a round. David will first play it through, and then Catherine will bring these two sections in, and I will bring the west two sections in, all of you starting at the top of the hymn.
Before I offer the invitation to communion, I want to go over the instructions. After the invitation and the prayer of blessing for the bread and the cup, we will begin to come forward to receive communion. The persons in the section to my far left and those directly in front of me will begin with the front rows or the rows nearest to the front moving first and then moving back through the section. As you exit your row, move to your right, and then as you return, come from the left. So if I'm talking to this section, you'll move down this aisle, come across to receive the communion, and then return that way. That section will be doing the same thing. When these two sections have all received communion, then these two sections will do the same thing. And so it's a circular movement from your pew to the communion and back to your pew. When you come to the front, pause before the cups of juice and bread, and first before the juice, and a single cup of juice will be placed on the plate in front of you. You'll receive that that juice, and then you'll put your empty cup in the cup tray that's there. And then you'll move over just a step, and you'll put your hand or your hands out, and you'll receive the bread. The persons who are serving communion will have gloves and masks, So you won't touch anything, and they will hand things to you for you to receive. As you move through the time of communion, partake of the elements as you move through. Often our tradition has been that everybody receives the bread, we wait, and we all take it at the same time. But you will take it as you come through. If you aren't able to uh, move from your pew to come forward for some reason, but you want to receive communion, please just raise your hand or indicate, and Seth and I will be the persons that are moving about to assist people who have to remain in the pews. Receive these words of invitation. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We belong to God, who is the source of creation and creativity, nourishment and nuance, community 
and connectedness. We are called to love the world and to feed the world with all the resources available in the divine pantry. To let our love for God and one another ripple around the world. And with all the imagination that can grow out of our conversations to be harbingers of hope and hospitality. When we eat and drink in Jesus' name, we remember there is more than enough to go around. And until everyone is fed, we cannot be complacent. Come, all who are in love and fellowship in the family of God, who do truly and earnestly repent of your sins and who humbly put your trust in Christ and desire his help that you may walk in newness of life. Draw near to God and receive this holy communion to your comfort and wholeness through Jesus Christ.